Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, I have a great privilege today to welcome to Beeson Divinity School and to the Beeson Podcast, Dr. F. Dale Bruner. Do you know the name Dale Bruner? He's one of the most fascinating biblical scholars who loves Jesus Christ, loves his church, loves the Bible, uh, that I've had the privilege of knowing. I've only known him for a few years. He and I were together at a, uh, a conference of pastors in Oklahoma a few months ago, and I thought, wow, we've got to get him to come to Beeson Divinity School. And he's here to give our biblical studies lectures on the Gospel of John. Dr. Bruner, welcome to Beeson and to this podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. George. I'm honored. Now, I want to begin by asking you to tell us just a little bit about yourself, how you became a Christian, and how you became a scholar of God's Word. Thank you for asking. Dr. Henry Demers, the Christian Education Director at First Presbyterian Church Hollywood, uh, was a major influence in our life. And a student, I visited her college class when I was a freshman at Occidental, and when you visit her class that week, somebody would come and visit you at your home. And I was visited by Joe Kinoshita. He said, would you come to the, would you like to come to our New Year's college conference, Dale? And I said, yes. And there I accepted Christ. He became real to me. And then she became the major influence in my life all four years at Occidental College. And, uh, I found Christ through her. I found Kathy through her. Uh, she warmly recommended that I should date Kathy Booth. That's your wife. That's my wife who's here. She kept saying to me, uh, Dale, isn't Kathy Booth delightful? And I said, yes. And, and uh, one day she said to me, Dale, I think the man who marries Kathy Booth will never have an unhappy day in his life. Ah. <laughs> and I got the message. She was suggesting that I... So the two main, Christ, Kathy, and my calling, which is teaching scripture, I got all from Dr. Henry Demers at wow. Hollywood Presbyterian Wow. I've heard Church. so much about Dr. Henry Demers. Yes. I never met her, but... Bill Bright, so many people yes. I've known were deeply influenced by her life and That's her right. teaching. Yes. So she was a Bible teacher and an educator. In yes, the- it was interesting. She was the director of Christian education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, which at one time was the largest Presbyterian church in the denomination. I think there were 3,000 in the whole Christian education program. But she herself, for all 35 years there, taught the college class. She said that's the key class in a church. That's where men and women meet each other and marry. That's where they make their philosophy of life, their major, their profession. And so she taught herself. She had a very high view of that college class. She said even if the Queen Elizabeth, uh, Queen of England came to uh, visit in Hollywood, she could not see me on Saturday night because the next morning I was teaching the college department of the First Presbyterian <laughs> Church in Hollywood. <laughs> that they took a priority her, over the Queen. Over the Queen. They invited her to Fuller and to Moody, I was told both. They said, you should extend your ministry. But she had a very high view of the church. She said, it happens in the church. Mm. And she said, I am. And so she stayed there. Wow. And even though she was closer theologically to Fuller, which was nearby, she had a very high view of the church. She sent us all to Presbyterian seminaries because she said, I want you to get your Presbyterian education. Yeah. So we all went off to yeah. Princeton. That was where she recommended we go. Yeah. Now, Dr. Billy Graham knew her and I think it, was deeply influenced by her. I'm told that his meeting with his crusade in Los Angeles was very influenced by his conferences with Henry Demers at, at Forest Home. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your work as a biblical scholar. You, you have written a number of very important, uh, I would say, uh, 
uh, path-breaking books. I'm thinking particularly of your two-volume commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. That's maybe the best known of your work, so you've written many others. What has led you into this particular field of gospel studies and Matthew? Now you've done John. You're lecturing on John for us here at Beeson. Talk about Matthew for a moment and then John. Thank you for asking that, too. And, uh, I backed into the biblical. I would hope to go to China as a missionary because Miss Mears, well, she even said once to me, she said, Dale, I've produced many pastors, but I've never produced uh, a major missionary. She said, I think you could be a missionary statesman. That's the word she used. Of course, that hit my ego. And <laughs> I thought, well, boy, if she thinks that, she's been right on Kathy, on Christ, and everything else. <laughs> so, but I applied to both Stanford and to uh, Cal Berkeley, and they turned me down. This was after I graduated from Princeton Seminary. So Hendrik Kramer, the great missiologist, yeah. the Dutch missiologist, uh, was at Princeton that semester, and he said, we have four schools in Europe, two in Holland, two in Germany, that have a missiology department in their theology department. Why don't you write? So I wrote all four, and the University of Hamburg wrote a warm letter back so that we can give you housing and provide a scholarship. So we went to Hamburg, did our uh, doctorate on a theology of the Holy Spirit, because this is Miss Mears again. She had said to me, Dale, I've never, and this was the phrase she used, I've never known a man of God who did not have a second crisis experience with God. Mm. She said that, and she never taught that publicly, but she said it to me privately. Mm. And so I mm. thought, when I got there, I said, could, is it possible I could study that issue? And they said, why don't you study the Pentecostal movement, which is the major mission movement at the time, and they have a doctrinal second experience called the baptism in the Holy Spirit, evidenced by tongues. So they suggested my thesis, compare the Pentecostal movement and the New Testament doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that was very happy and ex- existential, and, and it was not just academic. I wanted to know, should I have this? Mm. She died the year before I returned, but I think she would have agreed with my conclusion, which was, after com- comparing uh, mainly Paul and Acts with, with uh, uh, the Pentecostals, I honestly believe that when one accepts Christ, one does not just get a portion of the Trinity. Mm. Colossians, in him is all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. She would have agreed. She was never, no one was more Christ-centered than Henrietta Mears. That when, when, when one gets Christ, Dr. Mears, I believe one gets the, not only the Son, but the Holy Spirit and God the Father, and that it is actually doctrinally uh, misleading to tell people they've got to do something more Beyond Christ, I think that's the circumcision heresy in the 21st century. Mm. Uh, and so that was where the conclusion, and I think she would have agreed. Because the Trinity is undivided. Undivided. And when yeah. you get Christ, you get everything, yeah. really. Yeah, Father, then, Son, and Spirit. Yeah. Exactly. I think there are as many fillings as God wants to give us. I'd like to have one a day. But yeah. to say that there's one crisis, second one you've got to have, I think come close to being false teaching. You know, D.L. Moody uh, had a experience like this in, in yes. New York City. And um, I don't know that he ever taught this in quite the Pentecostal way, but he did really believe that there was something very special, very distinctive that God did in his life that transformed his ministry. Yes, it's true. There, were, I have an appendix to the book on the Holy Spirit that has the major figures. John Wesley was the sort of the major Protestant one, you know, with his, uh, uh, how does that go in Charles Wesley's hymn, uh, Phyllis? Anyway, he has a second blessing called sanctification. And then Finney and Torrey and Andrew Murray, F.B. Meyer, A.B. Simpson, 
the, I've, I've got all of them and their doctor at the back. And Pentecostals built on these figures who had this second blessing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they're, there's, it's a it's, part of it. It's yeah. still around, yes. Now, I want to get to Matthew, but before we do, since we're talking about Pentecostals, you know, it's such a tremendous, fast-growing movement all around yes. the world. Yes. And um, you're not a classical Pentecostal, I don't think. No, please. Oh, I, okay, I, I just want to be clear about that. Now, um, however, <laughs> I know you're Presbyterian. <laughs> I know you're Presbyterian, but I've, I've met all kinds of Presbyterians. Okay. But now, uh, you, what would you say we, and I would not call myself a, a, a Pentecostal either, uh-huh. but what would you say we have to learn from this enormous, fast-growing movement, especially south of the equator in Africa you're and right. Latin America, but it's, it's everywhere? Yes, you're right. I think the best Pentecostals are the Christocentrics and the one who lift up Christ and are enthusiastic about him. Mm. And I think that's the key to their, to their uh, growth is that they have not become infected by liberal theology and, uh, and the doctrine that brotherhood of God and a man and fatherhood of God and a lot of the kind of modish things. They, they, they preach Christ. Mm-hmm. And where that happens, I think that the church is alive in all the denominations. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you think about this doctrine of cessationism. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, but it, it seems to me I can't quite go there because mm-hmm. it seems to me to box God in in a way that's not really truly biblical, to compromise his sovereignty. What do you think about that? Am I wrong on that? No, I think you're right. I think Cessationism, which says in brief that those gifts were all for the first century and the apostolic age, but not for us, I think is false. What I think is wrong with, with Pentecostalism, they've taken one of the multiple gifts that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans and Ephesians, and, they've, and which one Paul puts at the bottom of his list and, uh, because they'd overemphasized it. What is wrong with the doctrine of speaking in tongues is a second blessing is that they say, we've all got to have the gift that some do definitely have. I do believe people, some people have the gift of tongues. Mm, yeah. But it was after many hard experiences I finally learned, you know, there are different parts in the body of Christ. And Kathy, my wife, tells me, Dale, your one gift is you have an iron butt. And you <laughs> sit for 12 hours in the, in, the, uh, in the library and study. And I really do think that's my calling. Mm. And I think all those gifts are still out there. And mm-hmm. I think there's the gift of tongues still out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, a, I'm not a cessationist. But I think it's false. If I, what if I told everybody, you have to sit in a library 12 hours a day until you're in, and only then are you a deep Christian? That would be heresy. Yeah, First Corinthians 12, there's one body, many parts, diversity of gifts. That, exactly, one that spirit. very point. Yeah. Yes. That's great. Now let's go to Matthew because you've invested such an enormous amount of energy and scholarly wisdom in bringing Matthew to us. Why Matthew? Thank you for asking that, too, because it's, it's a fun story. Uh, when we graduated from the University of Hamburg, we went to the Philippines uh, as Presbyterian missionaries for 11 years, Union Theological Seminary, Philippines. And I tried, uh, and my uh, assignment was systematic theology. My students fell asleep. <laughs> Part of my problem was I was just come from Germany, I was, and they all read lectures, so I was reading. I thought that's what a theology professor does. <laughs> Well, Kathy discovered this. In fact, forgive me that I keep bringing her in, but she's helped me a lot. And she said, how did Globe do it today? I said, well, it went all right, except several students were asleep. She said, well, why don't you memorize the text or t- topic you're, that you're doing that day and then eyeball them, you know, defy them to fall, just keep it and walk up and down the aisles and so on. It was right about that same time that I discovered when I taught the Sunday school class at the little barrio church, the same students who listened to my Matthew teaching 
were falling asleep when I was teaching the doctrine of God mm. were wide awake when I was teaching the gospel stories. Mm. Well, happily, Matthew is the most systematic of all the gospels. You know, Mark is chaotic. Luke has got a little system. But Matthew is very, very almost uh, rigid. Uh, nativity, first four chapters, then the Sermon on the Mount, five to seven, the ten miracles, Matthew eight and nine, the Sermon on Mission, chapter ten, person of Christ, so on. So I said, I'm going to try to teach systematic theology via the gospel stories, mm. like how God brought Christ into the world in chapter one, then the, the reception of the Magi, that's the doctrine of prevenient grace, the Herod, the doctrine of original sin, uh, baptism, initiation, uh, temptations and so on, and then the Sermon on the Mount, the Christian ethic. So uh, over, I would say, out of our 11 years, nine of the years there, I taught every semester Matthew's gospel as systematic theology. Hmm. And so that's how uh, the Matthew commentary was born, out of a, uh, an urgent mission situation in wanting to communicate Christian doctrine, but through stories. Fascinating. Now, you're giving lectures here at Beeson on the Gospel of John. Yes. Uh, very often, of course, Matthew and the synoptics generally are contrasted to John in terms of their historical trustworthiness or something like that. Uh, say a little bit about that debate, synoptics versus John, and what a, why, why should we be interested in the Gospel of John today? Yes, thank you. You ask good questions. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to answer these. Uh, the older view in the early 20th century was that uh, John was really trying to improve, felt the synoptics did a kind of not a sufficient emphasis on the deity of Christ and so on, but the current consensus in the uh, Johannine scholarship is that John knows and assumes the reader's knowing the synoptics, and he's just going to give, he's going to translate, because right when he's writing around the, in the 90s, in the late part of the first century, the church has become now majority Gentile. It was majority Jewish when Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing. And he's, I think he was Jesus' closest friend, and I think he's translating Jesus into the Greek medium. So you've got the prologue with the logos, the word, and so on. There are no exorcisms in John, for example, no mm. parables. It's, and you wonder why, because he's, speak, he's translating uh, uh, G, G, Jesus into Greek mm. and into their the logos and the, all this. Uh, the example I like to use is when we were in the Philippines, uh, both of our boys, one was two when he was there and the other was born there, and we taught them the catechism, and a Lutheran pastor suggested us, to us that we change, because the boys had never been to Egypt and, the, and so on and, and all that. And so when we taught our boys the Ten Commandments, and this is what John did with Jesus, I think. This is how it went. I am the Lord your God who baptized you and made you my sons. Don't have any other gods except me. Don't make any pictures of me. Don't uh, be careful with my name. Sunday is a rest day. Be good to your mommy and daddy. Never kill anybody. Be especially nice to girls. That was <laughs> creative. Uh, never steal. Never tell a lie. Never want what's not yours. And I asked my students, do you think Moses is rolling over in his grave that I change it like that? <laughs> and I know they said, no, that was the right thing to do. And that's what John did. He took the synoptic Jesus, mm. made him, because they're all, he gives long lectures. He makes him, made him Greek, talk sort of Greek. But the spirit and the sense of everything Jesus said in the synoptics comes out and is more pointed. For example, the I am's are the equivalent of the kingdom of God in, in the synoptics. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that's how I've 
So I think John is, is just sort of the, the final uh, gospel. You know, I've often thought of the gospel. There's one gospel, but Indeed. it's according to. Indeed. You know, kata. Yeah, <laughs> in kata, Greek. yoamian. And, and yes. so uh, John is, is, is proclaiming the same gospel, not a different one. There's one gospel, but kata, it, four different angles. Yeah, that's great. You know, I like to see it this way. Mark sort of took a picture of him underneath. And sort of got the earthy Jesus. Matthew got his profile, his head, because Matthew's very brainy. Then Luke got him with his hands and out like this and his feet spread apart in mission. Then mm. John went up in the ceiling and goes, and from these four angles, we get Jesus, I think. Yeah. You sort of see that in a way in the four traditional symbols for the four evangelists, you the know. Eagle, because the eagle is John. Vicky right? just showed us those symbols uh-huh. in your beautiful in a, chapel. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. He's the eagle from way up above, right? Right. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, I have to ask you one more thing about John because uh, I'm intrigued by the title of the message. You're going you're actually going to preach a sermon tomorrow. You're here to give lectures, of course, but, uh, you know, we, we don't make a big distinction between lecturing and preaching yeah. at Beeson. And so tomorrow you're going to preach uh, in our chapel service. And your title intrigues me, The Autobiography of God yes. from John Chapter 1. Yes. What are you going to say? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you know, after that first verse, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and so on. Then in 14, and the Word became flesh. And mm. Eugene Peterson puts it, and moved into the neighborhood. And I re- and then the 18th verse, which is the final verse of the prologue, as you know, and he says, God no one has ever seen, but God the only Son. And by the way, that's the NRSV right, it translates it now, too. God the only Son, who's back at the heart of the Father, he came down, and ekenos exegesato, that one exegeted, he explained he interpreted. And I think the prologue and the Gospel of John are saying that, <clears throat> as you know, if somebody wrote your life story, Dr. George, it would be a biography. But if you wrote your life story, it would be an autobiography. And I think John is saying in his prologue that the great God came down, took on flesh, became a real human being, and for 30 years he exegeted God. And he so I like to put it in brief that Jesus is the autobiography of God. I, I think that mm. is John's vision. It's wonderful. Well, I look forward to hearing that. Well, thank you. And we may share it with our podcast listeners because we have, you know, sermons, interviews, lectures, all kinds of things on the Beeson podcast. And so we, we may hear you uh, on the Beeson podcast oh, in the future, God willing. <laughs> but now um, this is a kind of a personal question. I don't know how you want to answer this question, but it strikes me from being around you just for a short time that you're a person with a lot of depth, a lot of conviction. You really love Jesus Christ and his church. And you are an ironic person. You you don't come across like gangbusters, like you're mad at everybody. But you have deep convictions. You're not wishy-washy. Uh, how do you keep that balance? That was extremely kind. That's just my impression of you. you well, know, I'm glad. I but I have nothing to say to that. I'm very grateful you think those things. I'm okay. glad I, I okay. conned you. Well, how would you give advice to a young pastor to do that? Because, you know, we're all confronted with these uh, conflicts in the church, in our own lives, in our families, uh, everywhere. I mean, this is just a part of life, isn't it? And how do you maintain the, the peace of Christ, the spirit of Christ in the midst of conflict? Boy, I hope that uh, John 17, Jesus' great high priestly prayer, you know, has been helpful. He's so longing that you be one so that the world out there will know that you sent me. And then he says it again. Father, may they please be one, locked into you, locked into me, and so locked into each other that they might be one, that the world might believe. He says it twice. And uh, his passion is for the unity of the church. 
And uh, Dr. Mears, who I said was such an influence, she was such a churchwoman. She, they asked her. That, that, that was, I'm glad I thought of this. Uh, they said uh, to her in the 30s when the modernist fundamentalist controversy was at its highest, they said, Dr. Mears, why do you stay in the liberal Presbyterian church? And she said, I'm the Presbyterian. I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith from cover to cover. Why should I leave? Mm. And hundreds of men and women went into the Christian ministry in the Presbyterian church yeah. because she was, she would, she was very anti-seismatic right. and very ecumenical and, and uh, had Helmut Tillicka and Billy Graham and all people from the, all, the whole spectrum of Christendom. I hope I caught some of that from her, and I hope that John has influenced me. He has such a passion for the church you know, being one, sticking together and hang in there till the, and Augustine is a big influence and, you know, his, yeah. uh, his longing to keep the church from the Donatist influence and splitting off. And, and, uh, I hope that I caught it from those two. And well, I sense that in you. I believe you, I believe it is there. I hope so. Now, um, when we were together last, uh, we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma at this wonderful church and conference together, um, I just picked up that you're a Presbyterian, you're a real Presbyterian, but you love Luther. Yes. Now, I'm yes. a Southern Baptist, and yes. I love Luther. All right. So uh, we just have a few minutes, but yes. tell me what, what intrigues you about Martin Luther. Why yes. is he important? Yes. I think people who are super intense, maybe too intense, need Luther, who Christians who, who are super intense, Luther's good for them. Because I'm giggling all the way through Luther, and he's not writing comedy, <laughs> but he is so thrilled with the gospel. Yeah. And I, I married a, a female, Martin Luther, a happy person. I, uh, I need to be relaxed. And Luther on every page is saying, hey, uh, you're never going to be perfect enough. You're never going to be good enough. You are loved even in, in your messed up mind and thoughts. All you need to believe is Jesus Christ loves you and you're in. And, and he keeps saying that every page about 20 different ways. And I think people who are a little too relaxed and uh, loose need Calvin. Because uh, he'll straighten out, and he's and he's real, he's he's nice and strict. But my favorite course at Princeton Seminary was Calvin's Institutes with Dr. Dowie. Oh yeah, Ed Dowie. Yeah, Ed Dowie, yeah. and he was, it was a his of first. Mine. Well, it was his first semester there, and it was a seminar. And boy, it was wonderful. But when we went to Germany, I thought I've got to read Luther, and oh, I just discovered. I mean, he's the fourth member of the Trinity. Just is so he just. <laughs> Uh, he loves Jesus Christ, and uh, and everything else is sort of to be related to him. Yeah. My friend Tal Prince uh, is here with me, and uh, he has a little mission statement from Luther for his church. I'm going to ask him to read it into our podcast uh, because it's such a great, and it captures just what you're talking about, uh, Dale. Luther says, My faithful request and admonition is that you join our group and associate with us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. <laughs> Isn't that great? See, that makes you laugh, doesn't it? Real, great, <laughs> and hard-boiled sinners. Yes. And, and he wasn't an adenomian. He didn't be able to live it up. But he knew that if you relaxed and believed the love of the Lord, You'd want to live a moral life. Yeah. Or send it abound. Grace did much oh, more. Yes. Huh? And he just Overflowing brings the changes on that, doesn't That's he? wonderful. Well, what a wonderful conversation this has been with Dr. Dale Bruner, a marvelous uh, New Testament scholar, leader of the church. Thank you for this conversation and for being with us here at Beeson today. Thank you for your thoughtful questions, Dr. George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. 
You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.